And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Here we are with part two of my H.H. Holmes investigation, and this time I'm very excited to announce I have a living relative, a descendant of H.H. Holmes himself. H.H. Holmes was known as Herman Webster Mudgett, and I have none other than great-great-grandson Jeffrey Mudgett on the program today. Uh, That's Jeffrey Mudgett Esquire, by the way. He does have a law degree, which we'll get into. But what's amazing is that Jeffrey has put together... A, a whole idea, this whole theory about H.H. H. Holmes being Jack the Ripper, and uh, this is outlined in his book, Bloodstains, and that theory kind of culminated in this incredible show on History Channel called American Ripper. Incredible theory, watch the show. Hopefully we'll get into some of that and some other stuff, but let's dive right in. Well, let me ask you, first off, what what do you like? Do you like Jeff? Do you like Jeffrey? Do you like uh, Jay Esquire? Do you like The Mudge? What, what do you like to be called? <laughs> Jeff. Jeff? Okay, easy enough. Yeah. Um, so that, now you, you have kind of an interesting background, like as I was looking into this, because you were a trial lawyer, but you also have um, like a degree in nautical industrial technology. Is that true? Well, that's the Merchant Marine Academy, and they teach us to drive oil tankers there. Oh, okay, okay. And they put this fancy phrase on it, nautical industrial technology, when, you know, really you're a ship jockey. Right. It sounds fancy, though. I mean, that sounds pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, I pulled it out a few times at bars. It didn't really work. <laughs> so now, but how did you get into law, then? Because that seems very different than, than law. Actually, there's a very specialized section of the law called Admiralty. Oh, yeah. And with my knowledge of uh, maritime, I transferred that over to representing bar pilots um, who had accidents colliding with bridges or other ships or docking mishaps. Uh-huh. And those guys are, are subject to uh, uh, trials, which are basically criminal, except no one ends up going to prison, but they lose their careers if something is found at fault or error. Sure, yeah. And that's what I used to do. I got a pretty good reputation for doing it well, and um, I'd get a call if someone had an accident on the West Coast of the United States. Wow. I mean, it's very specialized, which is kind of the key to lawyers, especially on the West Coast. Because uh, I've never heard of anything like that before, but it makes perfect sense. And maritime law is very spe- – did you operate under maritime law or the United States law? Both, but you're right. Maritime admiralty law goes back hundreds of years with the British. Right, right, and right. It was very very specified, very uh, unique rules to it, different uh, aspects of evidence. Uh, trial techniques, uh, questioning witnesses, the whole thing. So it's, it's it was a um, when I went to USD Law School here in San Diego, you know I had two or three classes where there were maybe four or five students in the audience with the professor, but it was you know very specialized admiralty law. Huh. You know, the, what kind of introduced me to that, which is, um, it, it, you know, I'm going to end up getting to a lot of disappearing people, so it's going to kind of lead into a segue into H.H. H. Holmes. But the first time I really heard about maritime law, I was listening to this radio show about um, disappearances on cruise ships and how a lot of the cruise ships that leave from the United States actually fly under flags of different countries, some smaller countries, some that people haven't even heard of. And the reason for that is is that they operate under maritime law, which is very different than the United States law. So a lot of people go missing, they get kidnapped for sex trafficking, and that the, the United States companies aren't really held liable because it's another country that's operating the cruise ships. And also maritime law is so... Uh, complex and and it it doesn't really fall under the United States law that a lot of people can't be tried and a lot of these companies get away from from the um, uh, the obligations of United States law which I just found fascinating and I'm sure you know the ins and outs of that completely. Well, they call that a flag of convenience. There you go. And yep. when you buy the ticket for that ship, you agree 
to be subjected to the laws of that country, so to speak, and sign away a lot of your rights as an American citizen when you buy the passenger ticket. Yeah, I think most people don't even realize that. Um, you know, cause I think the United States law is a little more stringent than maritime law. No doubt about it. It's the, the, the um, you know, those, those, most of the ships are with a Bahaman country, you know, like Bermuda or something like that. And, right. Right. And, um, they have those companies search out the best one for their environment when an accident happens right, or, yeah. or tax or taxes right, right, or right, the yeah. registration charges for ships. And then the, then each American cruise liner has to go for inspection periodically. Uh-huh. And the other countries tend to let them skip once in a while. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. When you, the way like big corporations skirt the laws. Uh, I mean, it's masterful, you know, I mean, it upsets me as a citizen, but it's truly masterful. Um, and as an analytical mastermind, you have to really appreciate the things, the lengths that they go to to get around things. Um, anyway, uh, I pulled you off topic. Uh, still very interesting stuff, um, but it leads us back to H.H. Holmes in kind of a cool way because you are a living descendant of him. That's well-documented. Uh, Great-great-grandson. Now, you are – just so I, just so I uh, get it correct, you're on – so Clara Mudgett was H.H. Holmes' first wife, one of three – um, one of several uh, women that he was involved with, but so that was his first wife, and that's that's how you're descended from him, correct? Yeah, and he that's his only legal wife. The other ones were oh, um, he never divorced her, so he pretty much lied to them and to the system when he would remarry remarry periodically. And as you say, he had scores of mistresses, but um, the the wives are interesting in that he never killed one of those. He would murder mistresses, but uh-huh. never the wives, never the wives, which I always found fascinating. So when you bring up Clara, that was his first wife. They married, I think, when he was still a teenager. Mm-hmm. They, had, they had a little boy who was my great-grandfather um, named Robert, who then had a little boy named Bert, who was my grandfather, and then my father, Richard. So you know, it's, it's a direct paternal line. It's funny how, like, when... When you start looking at you know the, the history, because people think H.H. H. Holmes was a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago that the last descendant of someone from the Civil War passed away, like maybe within the past decade. It is when you start hearing like how close the connections are. I mean, it's only a couple generations away from this stuff. I mean, we're talking about the early, you know, you talk about the 1800s or in the 2000s, but in truth, it's, you know, a little over 100 years ago, which really isn't that far. It's a couple generations. No, you're, and you're, you're, you're exactly right, and. I think people tend to uh, lose track of that when I give my talks or discussions or interviews on, on television or, or like on your show. Uh-huh. And you bringing that up, I think, is uh, valuable so that we see that's part of why I'm doing it, um, oh. Dan. And it has to do with making sure it never happens again. And I think some of the, some of the uh, issues and things about homes that we're uncovering mm-hmm. um, can be used to maybe further study what is evil and right. why would this brilliant man who could have done pretty much anything he wanted gone on that track mm-hmm. and how had that origin and roots been with the opportunity to be transferred on to other generations, how my family had refused it and none of them had even ever been convicted for jaywalking, let alone murder. <laughs> and I like, I like to bring that up because, you know, science and medicine, uh-huh. you'll pull up theories and theses and papers about, you know, transferring those things along generation to generation. And I think my family's living proof that that's not what happens. It's a, it's a choice a human being makes because he wants to be evil. Sure. I mean, this is, you know, not not to make this too controversial of a conversation, but I'd love getting into, you know, very thought provoking uh, avenues of thought. And I like sure. that you went this way because it's interesting because it's a similar argument that people bring up with homosexuality. So there's one side that yes. says it's genetic. One person says, oh, it's a choice. Now, I got to say, I fall on the genetic line here. And I think that that um, HH and this is interesting that I'm talking to you about it, because I, I do believe that there is a genetic um, connection to socio, uh, sociopathy, I guess that would be sociopathy. I don't know how you'd say that, but you know, psychopathy, sociopathy, like the, the brain I think is created in a way that 
along with along with environmental factors that kind of bring these things out. You know, you can have someone who maybe has these tendencies. Like I truly believe that my stepfather was a sociopath. I got one hundred percent. And and I look at the lineage of my family, and I think uh, my brothers and sisters. You know, I don't have a genetic link to him, but I think, uh, you know, not to disclose too much about my own family, but you're doing the same thing, so I, I feel it's only fair. But I think that they have they have little touches of of a sociopathic tendencies, and I genuinely believe that. Uh, that's not hyperbole, and I think that that this can be transferred. But I believe that in H. H. Holmes's case, you have a perfect storm, and I also believe that they're you know. It's kind of like with genetics. You've got so many different. It's like with okay. Let's say bacteria, right? You have every time you destroy you you destroy in a lab a group of bacteria with a certain um, antibiotic, you've eliminated ninety five percent. But there's always like one percent that is around that is now partially. Uh, you know, immune to that antibiotic. And over generations, there, you know, you can kind of have these combinations. There's algorithms being run all the time that create very specific bacteria. It's how we weaponize it. And I think that can happen with human beings on a smaller scale. And I believe that H.H. H. Holmes is one of these types of people who just is the perfect storm of the embodiment of evil, you know? Um, I like that. I like that. I, your theory is, is good. Well, well, thank you I very like much. I like that. And just, just remember, remember to keep in mind that when I go have um, the professionals want to compare Holmes with Gacy and Bundy and all those. Mm-hmm. Right. Those were people that sociopath tendencies you bring up, psychopath. But Holmes was, and I always keep this in mind, interested in money, all right? Mm-hmm. His was mm-hmm. not murder. His was money. And he murdered when someone got in his way or prevented him from making the next cash find. All right. Mm-hmm. And I think in that regard, he's very unique compared to those other serial killers. That's interesting. You know, I think you're, I think you're right, but I think what makes Holmes different, and this is also true of a lot of serial killers. I believe that there is an urge and, and as we're, you know, not, I don't, I just want to tease this a little bit cause I want to lay a little bit of a foundation before we get into it, but we're going to talk about, um, you know, cause one of the things you're known for is connecting him to Jack the Ripper, which I just find completely compelling. I, I don't know what side of the fence I fall on, but I, I love the argument you make genuinely. Um, and I think it's one of the stronger ones to be perfectly honest with you. A lot of people have come up with these theories, but in the Jack the Ripper case, you have a guy who's, you know, you make an argument motivated for money. And again, I think a strong one. Uh, but but in those you can really also make an argument that it's just an urge to kill to to um, uh, it, it, it's about dissection with 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 specifically with the Jack the Ripper and also with Holmes as well you know early on um, you you know I, I talked about in a previous podcast with with uh, about how he kind of was tut- uh, tutored by a local physician and got into dissection and I think you know when you start looking at a lot of these serial killer cases there's something about you know, it's either like the destruction of life or watching life disappear from someone or the revealing the closeness. I also spoke with um, one of my previous podcasts with a pathologist, mortuary worker, uh, Miss Carla Valentine. She does autopsies and things like that in a morgue. And, you know, just the, the intimacy of revealing the inner parts of a person, there's something in their brains that 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 becomes like a very adrenaline pumping situation. And uh, yeah, I, I think that those are unique to those people. And I think Holmes kind of falls into that category. Why am I going on this rant and tangent? Because I think you're right with money's the case, but I think there's this inherent urge to so like, you think he did many of them for power and he enjoyed uh, <sighs> that feeling he got when he played God. I, I think power's part of it, but I also think there's a, a fascination with, um, doing something and and seeing something that no one else gets to, you know, do it. And there might be something, you know, this happens with a lot of people, not to take this down, you know, an XXX route. But I think there's a lot of people when it comes to sexual perversions, like doing something they're not supposed to do. And I think he liked doing things he wasn't supposed to do when he was smart enough to get away with it. Oh, he was definitely an anarchist. I mean, he didn't believe in the, that the laws applied to him to him and he mm-hmm. thought he was smart enough to manipulate sure. uh, law enforcement anyway he need, needed to further his profits but i'll go with what you're saying i don't um one of the difficulties i have 
is when, and I'm not talking about you, but when people want to <laughs> understand Holmes' mind, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about a man of incredible IQ, um, legendary at the University of Michigan for his tests and his results and those things he could sure. have done. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, I don't, I try to stay away from why did Holmes do this? Why would he have murdered those women the way he did in Whitechapel when he built a castle in Chicago? Mm-hmm. All right, to do the same thing. And those are great questions. I don't know why the MO is different. I think my co host in American Ripper during one of the segments had a brilliant theory and thesis that history let her reveal to the to the public about his evolution as mm-hmm. a murderer into pure evil. And I think, I think, uh, you know, with her training at CIA and, and forensic psychology, I think she comes the closest yet that I've heard. And by, by the way, she's the most brilliant human being I've ever met. It was just a pleasure to work with her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we haven't finished our conversation, so hold off on most brilliant human being. Uh, but I, I do, I'm kidding there. I do want to say that, um, uh, I don't, I, I'm not going to rehash. <laughs> it took me a while to grab that. Yeah. Okay. I was like, I was like, okay, he's not laughing. Maybe he doesn't like me. Uh, I do want to say we're not going to rehash American Ripper. I want to go deeper into the stuff we talked about. And so I highly recommend anyone listening to this. You got to watch the full series. It's only eight episodes. Uh, it's a, it's really, really good on history channel. You can find it online. Highly recommend it. Um, as well as your book, Bloodstains, which we're going to get to in a second. But before we do, I want to talk about your history. Uh, I know you've mentioned it in other places, but I want to – how did you find out that you were a descendant? Um, how did that affect uh, you know, your life from that point forward? You know, and I tried to explain that in the book. It's, it was a dinner party. My family was together at my grandmother's house. My grandfather, a very quiet, stoic gentleman, was there. We were back and forth over Grandma's chicken dumplings. She was revealing her latest search regarding our genealogical uh, findings that she had hired a company to uh, do for her back in the day when it was very expensive. There was no Ancestry.com. And she had a theory that we were related to the Civil War General Robert E. Lee. She wanted it proven. When they came back with results, they basically, Dan whispered in her ear that this is a sleeping dog that you should let lie. This isn't Robert E. Lee. They fibbed a little bit for her benefit, calling this an Arkansas horse thief that had been hanged by the neck. Mm-hmm. That's random. Well, for some reason, my grandfather decided that was enough. He wasn't going to carry this secret by himself anymore. And he told the family, including my grandmother, who wouldn't have married him had he told her the truth what? because you know back Why? oh back in those days Holmes the New York Times called Holmes not a devil the devil all right yeah. so back in you know 1901 when you asked a woman to marry you and had to reveal that your grandfather was perhaps the most evil man in American history that would have been a tough sell and i know knowing my grandmother i doubt it would have happened so hmm. um he he let the family know that this was our burden as well now. He was going to be the only one. But he said as he stormed out of the room, any mention of that name in my house and you'll be forbidden here forevermore. Hmm. And so it was, it was quite the night. It was uh, shocking. I tried to uh, blow it off. Mm-hmm. Couldn't. Started doing some research. Uh, became mesmerized with the home story as as you know that the further you dig into it the more interesting discoveries you make things that don't make sense and um, i set set my career aside as a trial lawyer in california to determine what was legend and what was lore and lo and behold wrote a book which was turned into a television series and now i think you know we're there's a studio looking at making it a movie hmm. um so i got a couple questions about that as it le- as it as it, and as it pertains to the book, um, because I really want to separate fact from fiction. Because when I started yeah. reading the book, uh, I thought it, when I first when I first was was doing research on you and your work, uh, I thought it was it was going to be a, like a historical fact book. Started reading it and realized it's actually a fiction book that's very interesting. And I actually think it tells a lot about. It's really like a psychological dive into you personally. I believe, or I could be wrong. Um, but it definitely, I definitely took it as that, like someone coming to grips with this information and how it will affect them, uh, which, which I found fascinating. 
But there's a lot of little nuggets in the book that it's hard to separate fact from fiction. And I think it's important because when you're trying to understand the facts, you personally may be a key or even your family historical artifacts that you may have come into possession with, which are very important to this case. You know, the central theme of the book is you inherit a couple of diaries. Did that really happen? Or is it just like a a story device to be able to push forward, you know, the story later on as you in later chapters? Yeah, that's one of the two or three issues that I don't address on interviews. But you're exactly (laughs) right. It's a fiction based upon a true story. Uh Uh, Most of it is true. Uh, There are gaps that I filled in with imagination and conjecture. Uh, fantasy even. Obviously, I did not stalk a woman through the streets of Sacramento contemplating murder (laughs) as one of the chapters uh, is. Um, But, you know, I, I, um, Dan, I got to tell you, that has to do with my theories about the inaccuracies of literature as a whole these days. Uh I I wanted, I discussed that with uh, my manager and with uh, an attorney, a Hollywood attorney about calling it nonfiction or going with fiction based on a true story. And, you know, it, it, we got into that Truman Capote argument in cold blood about right, what yeah. was true and what was not and calling something nonfiction, even though you knew you had made things up. Mm-hmm. And uh, we decided to go with the fiction. And okay. like I said, most of the story is true. There are parts that aren't, but there are parts, those parts that aren't, I think are definite possibilities based on the research that I've done these past 20 years. Got it. Okay, so I'm going to ask you some questions then since we're getting into this. And then you can say, okay. you can either yeah. expound upon it or say no comment. Because, yeah. I mean, if you don't want to talk yeah. about it, obviously I'm not trying to destroy your reputation. Well, I won't, I won't talk about the diaries if that's what's coming up. Oh, that's the first so question, not, yeah. Okay, so you're not going to yeah. talk about those. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, so Everything else is fair game. Okay. Um, well, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, actually, before I do that, I want to ask you about, so when you found this information out, it clearly affected you in such a way that you gave up a law practice to pursue this. And this has kind of been your path for, you know, I think you said you, you found out at 40, you're not 40 now. So yeah. there's at least a couple years where you've been kind of, this has been your main focus. How come that 20, happened? 20 years. That's a long time. It's two decades. Uh, I mean, That's right. that represents either one of two avenues here, and you'll probably only admit to one of them, but I'm still going to mention both of them. You're either doing right. it strictly for profit as a way, as a, a really interesting way to kind of make your mark in the homes world because you are uniquely suited to do that. No shame in that, you know, not turning my nose up at it, no judgment. That's one option. The second option is that this somehow profoundly affected you in a way that you just couldn't shake. I mean, I guess there's a spectrum, but I'm going to go with those two things. Uh, so where do you fall into that? Um, yeah, I, I, it always puzzles me why people try to stamp me with something improper because in American society, I'm interested in selling a book which has a margin of profit. Although my the money I made as a lawyer in California was far greater than I make as an author. Of course. No, I believe that. Totally. Yeah. So I always get a chuckle out of that, but I understand where people come from. I was on a show in the uh, UK the other day and one of the callers said, you're just doing this to aggrandize the story. You're trying to make money off Jack the Ripper. And as an author, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself. So I, rather than be angry, and quite frankly, Dan, when I go on those shows, I actually even get violent threats because mm. of my theory that Holmes was Jack the Ripper. doesn't make any sense. And I asked the caller, you do that to every author that has a theory about Jack the Ripper, or is it only because of my relationship to this monster right. that, you know, that comes up on my, my interviews time and time again? And, they had, you know, I obviously have no answer for it. But um, I think you're right in that I did not want to write a book, Dan, about how many windows there were at the murder castle, how many exact murders Holmes committed. There's, there's hundreds of those already out there. I wanted to write my story and allow my readers to step into my shoes to see where their life would have gone had their grandfather revealed this horrible secret at a family dinner party hmm. and then consider evil, consider murder, consider origin, consider God. 
and see how that would affect, you know, the beliefs they have in life in general, which I got to tell you, this, this quest I've been on has, cha- has changed my life and the things I believe in instrumentally. Well, I think I may have stumbled upon a sensitive issue here, which I didn't necessarily mean to do, because I, I don't personally believe the profit thing was more, that's just, that's an avenue. What really struck me, and, and I, I guess the, the, the point I was getting at was that it takes a lot for a person to give up a successful career and to pursue something like this. So my belief is that this profoundly affected you. And, and I guess my marriage. My, my wife oh, threatened to divorce me because of it. My oh. family threatened to not include me on any more family matters. Um, they were all dead set against it when I first started. And, and I believe that completely. And so I guess it's more of you know, a question of why did this affect you? Like what, what string did this pluck that resonated with you so strongly? Yeah, which is a you know, tough question. I can tell you this. And I was with my brother the other day. I was a grand marshal of a parade in Indianapolis. And my brother joined me. He's from Ohio. And we, were, we had a unique opportunity to sit down and talk about how our lives had changed because of my grandfather's revelation and then knowing where we had come from, the roots. Mm-hmm. And we both admitted to each other that we knew we were different. We had idiosyncrasies, all right? We were different than other people. We had kind of written them off as just just a mudget thing. But when we had an identity, when we were able to research how terrible, you know, it, that there were newspaper articles saying, you know, this was the worst ever. Chicago, the Tribune wrote, you know, the, the greatest con and criminal to ever strike Chicago. Um, that was who our direct descendant was. And so we, we came, came to Jesus a little bit and admitted we, we were different. And that identity was something which the Mudgets had um, ran away from, Dan, uh, for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. They moved west to get away from the stigma. All right, mm-hmm. um, back before Wi-Fi and cable and all that, and they got away with it. Well, now we realized, you know, we've got a DiCaprio movie coming up with Scorsese, and uh, like, rumor has it that they're going to spend more money on this epic than ever before in Hollywood history. Hmm. DiCaprio's out there giving interviews saying this is the role of a lifetime, the one he's been waiting for. Wow. Um, so you and I both know what's coming with that movie. Mm-hmm. It's going to, it's going to be horrific as they can make it without crossing, you know, that imaginary line. So I told the family, we can't run away from this anymore. And that's, that's that part of that, Dan is, uh, do you remember the old Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche, uh, the philosopher's statement about rather than become the monster, I decided to fight him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I pretty much took that on in my head, and that's kind of the way I was as an attorney. I, I had a reputation for taking on the big, tough cases and coming away with a, a win. And when I started hearing the things that were being said and written about Holmes, I doubted many of them. I didn't understand how anyone could be that bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I think from what I'm hearing from you, you do quite a bit of research into Holmes yourself. Unfortunately, the more you do, the more you realize he was that bad. And he was a terrible man who the story has yet to be told completely about. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of truth. It's funny. The, the, so I, I interviewed um, a historian, Harold Schechter, who wrote a book called Depraved, kind of started the whole Holmes. I admire him very much. It's really interesting because you guys have two very different takes on Holmes. Um, and actually, his take was very surprising to me is he doesn't think Holmes was that bad at all. And he thinks that a lot of the things attributed because nothing can really be proven to him. Um, in, in, tr- he's doing the research. It's hard to pin so many murders on him and you really only have to go on his memoirs and those are conflated with like stories of people he said he killed who were actually alive. Hard to separate fact from fiction and anything that he said. 
And he also said that a lot of the re- news reports, uh, things in the newspaper, obviously, uh, were a lot of yellow journalism, things that were, um, you know, sensationalized to sell newspapers. And if you start taking that into effect, why am I bringing this up? Because it sounds like you've taken a lot of that on and this whole notion that he was the worst man to ever live. And as a Mudget, you know, because his name was Herman Webster Mudget, no one knew him as that. Everyone knew him as Holmes. So the stigma on your family, you know, I would say is probably worn off a lot in the past century. But, you know, that that stigma, maybe he wasn't as bad as people said that he was, but this has profoundly affected you, how you see yourself, how you see your family, and has sent you down this whole path. What if you found out that he wasn't really that bad and it was all just marketing, essentially? Oh, I just disagree with that, those theories. And I know there's a couple of authors coming out with that stuff. Um, I mean, look at, I, while I admire Harold Schechter, it, it disappoints me that he would present that theory to you when he titled his book Depraved. Oh, I found it surprising, but I mean, I can't disagree. He did the research. I didn't. Um, but, you know. Well, uh, as he said, he, his research, you know, I'll give you some examples, Then um, I was the first author to write about going into the post office basement where others just mentioned newspaper articles. Now, is that true, though? First it, one. Let, let, me, let me just stop yes, you. Is that true? that's okay. true. Okay. Eric Larson never did. Mm-hmm. Harold never did. And, and unless they're going to they're gonna change their story now. But, um, and I, whether it's important or not, I don't know. But um, I, I call the authors now, the people that call themselves historians, Dan. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a phrase for them. I call them Google Cowboys because pretty much, they get on the Google, they find a newspaper article from 1896 Chicago or Philadelphia, which has quotes and quotes from H.H. Holmes while he was giving interviews in his prison cell awaiting execution. Mm-hmm. And all of those gentlemen authors would admit that he was probably the most pathological liar that ever lived in America. Mm-hmm. And when you take a quote from the man and you run it, two stories down and then an author uses that quote as fact, right? You've committed a a sin in literature. If you ask me and what I decided to do, Dan was eliminate those things and see if I could determine what was fact and what was fiction. And I'll tell you when people want to argue about his evil side or whether he was as bad as he was or not, I just bring up Howard Peitzel and the two sisters. What what more evil do you need to identify the man? When he and murdered those a child, are, those murdered. are proven murders. Yeah, yeah, and the Pietz are no children. Doubt. Those are the. I mean, to me, he those cut are him the up worst. and put him in trunks. Yeah, yeah. Okay, he premeditated a week ahead on how to do it properly so they wouldn't. Be he used Howard to try to arrange life insurance benefits. And after murdering the kid's father, when he, uh, um, they had a plan or a, uh, I don't know, what, how would you call it? They intended to make $10,000 worth of life insurance money. And somewhere in that, in that plan, it went awry and Holmes murdered his partner. Um, he then arranged for the three children to be put in his custody by the wife of his just murdered partner who he took to Indianapolis, murdered the little boy, took the girls to Toronto, murdered them there. And I I really find it hard to understand where people get off saying he wasn't as bad as he has said. Just those three right there. And then they want to say, because we haven't proven murders at the murder castle, that we can't say that he was this evil genius that intended the place as a, a murder castle or factory of death. Well, he was a doctor, a chemist, a pharmacist. He was a resurrectionist. He dug graves to pay his tuition. And the man knew how to eliminate human remains as far as evidence of murder. Uh, I, I just, I'm not, I, that argument to me is specious. And I would tend to ask them to wait until we get a chance to excavate those grounds before they start making claims about he didn't murder that many people. Because I think they're going to be surprised. Well, let me play devil's advocate with you here. Uh, so, again, I, I'm not a historian. I'm just, you know, this is just throwing it out there to see, see what, you, what you think. 
But, you know, murdering three three children. Now, obviously, he's a bad guy. I mean, I'm not going to say that he isn't. But there's, you know, there's mothers who go and drown their kids in a tub and they premeditate it. You know, does that make them the – that doesn't make either one of them the worst killer in history, you know? Um, I mean, Hitler in, in Nazi Germany and his group of people decided to, to commit genocide on a mass scale. You know, I mean, to say that he's the worst person in history is kind of th- I think that's where the sensationalism comes in. And even if you, you say the worst serial killer in United States history, you can't it's all speculation. You know, like I'm not saying you are wrong, but I think that. It's still speculation because the confirmed number of people killed, we don't have that. We may get it, but we don't. So I think that that's kind of where people hedge their bets on on whether or not he did what he did. I mean, it's impossible to say. So, you know, it's hard to it's hard to definitively say any of that. You know what I mean? And their argument is just as speculative as the other side. What evidence do they have that he didn't? Sure, but but you know you're a trial lawyer. I mean, you can't. The evidence against is not evidence for. You know, I mean, like you can't say, well, we don't know that he didn't do it, so he could have. I mean, you you couldn't really convict anyone on that. I mean, you know, I, I we got four murders proven. I mean, in a, t- yeah. a period of, a period of time of a year. Yeah. Um, is it is it speculative to think he murdered before those? I, to me, no, but. I mean, if that's where they want to go with the story in order to sell their side of a book, which I hope you ask them the same question about that argument that you asked me about, is that intended to be sensational to sell a book um, when they don't have any evidence to back it up? Then, you know, I I could stand on a stage and argue that with them. That's that's fine. Um, I don't. Yeah. I, I've been get I've been getting this a lot lately. I know Mr. Schechter. I know Mr. Selzer, who I detest, and I just don't believe his theory. And I'll give you an example why. Um, the man went on a television show with me about two years ago called Haunted History, The Murder Castle, and said that Holmes killed 200 people. Then he writes a book saying, "Well, it was only 13." I, uh, you know, I, I've those things bother me as the next trial attorney. How people can change their theory on the flip of a nickel in order to further, you know, so. No, 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 no. And I'm not trying okay. to. And, and that's why I enjoy you bringing up. I called my book fiction based on a true story. They're mm-hmm. calling theirs nonfiction. All right. Yeah. And no, there's I, a difference. And I'm not, I'm, a difference. I'm not, I'm not giving you anything. I'm just asking questions because yeah, you're willing to engage yeah. me in the conversation. I, I just think yeah. like what's interesting about it to me is that there is such a spectrum because some stuff can't be proven, you know, but my, my, oh, it can be, we're going to excavate those grounds. Just like, just like, you know what, Dan, um, these other gentlemen that write the books based on speculation and newspaper articles, I had an exhumation done. All right. Mm-hmm. I arranged for a million dollars to be spent. I arranged for a court to agree to allow me to find out if it was Holmes or not, all right? Uh, Amassing the greatest collection of anthropological scientists, forensic scientists, genealogical engineers, geological engineers, made sure that we did it right, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big step much farther than anybody that writes a book based on Google newspaper articles from 1895. No, I think you're exactly right. We actually took a step off and did the scientific thing. And we're going to do the same thing with those grounds in Chicago for an excavation of the murder castle. We'll find out whether there's evidence there, whether there's DNA there. Uh, DePaul and the University of Penn have agreed to help me on that as soon as I get permission and financial backing. So that's, that's, I think that's a huge step. Well, you're definitely on the forefront of all of this, uh, and I think that one of the I think one of the biggest kind of breakthroughs there are two breakthroughs, and you brought them both up on the show was that there's a large portion of the the where Holmes's castle was that that has kind of remained untouched for close to it's probably seventy or eighty years, but but very close to you know the time when the castle was up. That's fascinating. I mean, that is yeah. undisturbed land that could, I mean, it could hold nothing or it can hold everything. And the yeah, trick and is... Well, and that's the gamble you take when you do a scientific sure. excavation. I mean, we don't, I don't know what's there. We could have proof that he's Jack the Ripper there. Yeah. Um, we probably don't, but we could. 
we could have evidence of DNA there. Um, the naysayers will bring up that doesn't prove that he committed a murder on that site. Well, okay. But if we get to the point where there's a furnace, there's acid, there's lie pits, why would those have been needed? Why would he have needed a glass factory in Chicago? He never sold glass from why would he have needed a concrete factory along the Chicago river? He never sold concrete from the, all these coincidences are huge. I totally And I'm going to intend to go as far as I can seeing what's true and what's not rather than just writing, you know, a piece saying, I don't believe this proves Holmes was a murderer. Okay. Well, well, how amazing is it that the the land that is undisturbed that you have to get access to is covered by a government building? Like probably, I imagine, I don't know, I don't know what you've gone through to get the permits to to dig, but, you know, the, the power of television and history and whatever money they put into it didn't get you the permits for it. A lot. Uh, so, like, how hard has that been to, to, to arrange? It's uh, difficult, but I'm probably the only man in the world that can arrange it to happen eventually, and I'm going to, you know, keep uh, use that as my destiny. But I'll tell you this, the, uh, and those the people we were discussing were right on the fact that the is built around the murder castle. It only overlays maybe 10 feet of it. Oh, but, I didn't know that. The part where the murder, yeah, it's offset. Hmm. The murder castle sits on some grass where, where it once stood is some grass now with a couple of trees. And, you know, I've uh, hired a lawyer in Washington, D.C. We're working right now on explaining to the post office and the federal government that we won't interfere with post office operations this is a part of American history that needs to be resolved. And we furthered the argument, Dan, in stating that when they bought the land in 1937, they had an obligation, according to law, to investigate the murders that may have happened there. Hmm. And they refused to do so. They simply wanted the land because it was a perfect place to put a post office at the junction of the rail lines there in Chicago. Hmm. And they did so. So they tore the murder castle down. They built the post office over the top. And that wasn't correct legally. That was a violation of federal law. And I'm going to try to convince them, listen, look at the way we conducted the exhumation. We were ordered by a a court to not allow it to be a media circus, to conduct it under the full extent of scientific findings, to submit those findings to the court and then to present it to the American people in as tight and controlled, concise manner as it deserved because of, you know, the, 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 the innocents that are involved. And I think we did that. And I'm going to take that to the federal government and say, okay, we want you to reconsider your initial refusal. We want you to see how we conducted the exhumation. We'll do the same, if not more so, with the excavation at the murder castle grounds. And then we'll present to you our findings and get your approval before we release those findings to the public. And I, um, when I explained to them, Dan, that they violated federal law the way it was done, I think, I think they're going to change their mind. And if I have to do it hard or if I just want to, if they allow me to talk them into the right thing to do, I'm hoping it's the latter. But if it has to be hard, I'll go that path, too. Well, it's, you know, it's when you start doing anything federal government, any any government, actually, when you do any politics is involved in literally everything that you do. But when you start dealing with the federal government, politics can become a very powerful force that you're going to have to go uphill against. And one of the things um, that you mentioned in in a previous interview is that you offered to put up um, a a plaque commemorating the people who who were murdered there, and they didn't allow it. And my guess is because the government doesn't want that stain on an official government building. I could be wrong. I don't know. No, I agree with you completely. They disagree. My father and I agreed to out of our own pockets, put a plaque there, not mentioning Holmes or the Murcastle, just the victims, uh, the the possible victims, you know, obviously still anonymous Mm -hmm. that um, could have been murdered there. And I think you're right. The federal government knew at that point, if they had allowed us to do that, we were right over to the next step where they would exactly. have to have that investigation. <laughs> exactly. And you know what they told me? They oh. said I could put up a bush. 
<laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. It's insulting. But you know, well, the... I, I think I think although I think you're right, and you bring up a great point. I hope you tell your audience that that was very logical on their part yeah, not to agree to that. Yeah, yeah. and and it's gonna and it's going to. Um, but that's going to hinder your future efforts. I mean, if they didn't let you have a plaque, they're not going to let you dig up their parking lot. or And they may not have a choice, depending on whatever route you go down. But I'm saying it's, it's going to be difficult. I, I think shows like yours uh, is a big step for me on that. All I have to do is uh, have, uh, obviously, an intelligent, logical man like yourself who's oh, willing to look you. at both sides of an argument yeah. um, fairly. Um, well... When you bring up, wait a minute, we need to see if those things happen there. And the federal government, we're not going to interfere with your post office operations. We're actually, it's going to help DePaul and UPenn and their mm-hmm. anthropological yeah, yeah, divisions. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. We'll have incredible writings about what went on and maybe you know, close the book on a, on a part of American history that Chicago swept under the rug for 100 years. Well, I hope that my show is powerful enough to give you some access to the post office. Um, and if that happens, um, I want to take full credit for that. Uh, now, let's... <laughs> well, I'd like, you to, I'd like you to be there when the first shovel goes in. Oh, that'd be amazing. Oh, God, yes. I'm from Chicago, so I would love any excuse to go back. Although I hear it's a pretty rough neighborhood, but you know, we can deal with that it's later. Rough. It's rough. So now let's, let's talk about the exhumation. So I'm going to ask you some let, – let's talk about some facts. And I'm going to ask you some hard sure. questions because yeah. I think sure. that this is another – I mean this is – you, you know, you orchestrated it, but you had like, I mean, this is a unique opportunity to really answer a bunch of questions. So yep. this, this happened this year. I mean, this is May 2nd of 2017. You yep. zoomed the crypt. You had a top level archaeological team there. Um, you know, there were lots of, in the writings, the, the grave was, you know, he was, had cinder blocks on top of him and, and, and fake coffins. And he basically did everything he could to stop people from digging him up. Um, but yet you guys, which is an assumption on your part, Oh, it... but I, I know where you're going. I know where you're going, but it is an assumption on your part based on the okay. theories of other people. I tend sure, to think sure. it had to do with him not wanting to know what was actually buried there. Okay. That's fair. So we can say that there were lots of kind of roadblocks to getting to the body that's buried <laughs> where he is. Yeah. We can agree on that, right? Oh yeah, full year it took us to get permission. Well, not even I mean not even legal roadblocks. I mean physical roadblocks. I mean there was you did run into a pile of concrete um, and a fake coffin, and you had to dig. Yeah. Would you get down to twelve feet? I mean that's not normal grave stuff, and that was I believe Holmes wanted those things in place. So what I'm saying is that there were actual physical roadblocks to get to a body. Um, that was buried in the spot uh, where Holmes is said to be buried. And you got to him, and you dug up a body, and there there was analysis that were done. And I believe, uh, I think you've mentioned this before, but you actually, in the skull from the body that was found, you found an intact human brain. Is that that correct? Am I I right in that? And that's a quote from the scientist, intact. When I, it was, uh, and I don't quite know why it wasn't um, shown, but it was filmed, and the as I picked up the skull, I, at that point, Dan, I, I had been pretty much convinced by everyone on the team that they thought this was home. All right, I hadn't seen DNA, I hadn't seen the skeletal discrepancies, I hadn't seen the quote-unquote dental records that they were using to identify the cadaver yet. Mm-hmm. So when I walked into the UPenn laboratory, and the, the skeleton and skull were there on the, the table. Um. You remember Othello and Hamlet and the skull and it, to be or not to be yeah, those questions. I yeah. I grabbed the skull Big and quote. I lifted it up. And, yeah, and tending <laughs> to look into those eternal sockets. Yeah, and it flopped in my hand, and That's weird. flopped again. So I asked the scientist, Doctor Munch, who is Doctor Cox, Doctor Cox's boss at UPenn. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, why is this flopping in my hand? She says, it's not, Jeff, that's impossible. And she, I said, well, it just flopped again. So she ran over, grabs it, and it flopped in her hand. We rolled it over, and inside was an intact human brain, and that's her word, intact. And when I asked her, how can this be? She said, it can't be. 
And I still haven't had an answer how that brain could have remained all these years when the rest of his flesh is gone. That is, I mean, that's really bizarre. And I think this is one of the hallmarks of, I mean, I'm a logical guy. I do, you know, I do lots of shows on supernatural-ish things. Sure. Um, I'm a logical guy. I'm not saying, th- I'm an open-minded skeptic, let's say that. And I got to like tell that. you. I like that. Uh, oh, well, thank You're going to you. give me a fair shot of my Jack the Ripper evidence. I can tell. Uh, I, I, that's all I ask. That's oh, all I ask. Absolutely. Um, and so, so with with the that that when it comes to a lot of things in the Holmes case, even the stuff that is provable, there's lots of weird things. We haven't even gotten into the Holmes <laughs> curse, which is borderline supernatural. Uh, no. Which and if you and which if, I find totally fascinating. Okay. Well, and, and and the next step we're going to talk about is whether this is Holmes or not. But either if it is Holmes, that's super interesting. And if it is not Holmes and Holmes is in fact buried in that grave, that's even more interesting, right? Because then he had nothing to do with, I think there's, I think you mentioned 40, there's at least 12 to 13 people who've died unexpectedly, tragically, strangely, who were associated with the Holmes crime. That's fascinating, either side of the coin. Right? Well, and just, just to give you another example of that, Mr. Selzer is the one that gave me the 40 number, okay? Okay. When he researched the Holmes curse, okay. All right. So, so, the, and that's, I mean, that's, yeah, and I don't know, it's just bizarre to me. So, the fact that there's an intact human brain when all the other flesh is destroyed. Now, it is interesting that you guys did a test, a concrete test, where you took, I believe it was pig parts and put them in concrete, buried them for a week, and they were pretty much intact when you dug them up. Um, I don't know if that, that plays into this, but... Ah, that was History Channel stuff. Dan, okay. I, I agree. And I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's. I, I don't really. I don't know either way. I don't. I just don't know. But eh, it doesn't have anything to do with it. Okay. Ask me. Bizarre, right? I, I know a lot about biology. I, I actually just did um, a shameless plug for myself. I have another podcast where we talk about how to create a Frankenstein's monster, and we get into the deterioration of flesh. Interesting. And how to like like how long does it take to deteriorate? And we talk about the brain being the first to go. Now, what it really means is that the neurons are the first to die. Now, that doesn't include disintegration. And what we're talking about here is disintegration of flesh, not disintegrating of the brain tissue. However, um, again, not a biologist. That is super bizarre that there's a brain inside of a skull. Oh, but also, I think your I think your listeners will eat that up. They'll like that. I mean, I, I still haven't got an answer from the uh, greatest scientists in the world and are anthropological. And so, but this offers a very incredible opportunity for DNA study. Now, I'm assuming that everything that they yeah. showed that they did on the show, they actually yeah. did, which included taking um, parts of the of the of the skeletal bone structure and sending that in for DNA analysis. I, the brain wasn't I was mentioned. I was there when they took that sample. Okay, so that they take the sample. May 28. Go to get it tested. You provided your DNA. And what that basically will establish is uh, because DNA is so specific. It won't say that you're Holmes, but it will, you know, we're 98% close to the chimpanzees, but we can tell that apart. So when it comes to DNA, we can tell uh, familial link, which is what they were trying to establish by taking your DNA and the skull DNA. They didn't mention the, the brain at all. Um, and I, 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 nope. I don't know if DNA is actually capable. I don't know if it's capable of being taken from a degraded brain. That I don't know. Um, but they may not have. So that goes out, and the tests come back. And and this has actually been widely documented in several um, in several articles as well from the archaeological team. Now they believe, and this was mentioned on the History Channel television show, that the DNA that came back was in fact a match. And then the conclusion that they draw, which in fact is a logical one. No, no. The lead okay. scientist at UPenn said it wasn't a match. I have her on tape saying at the UPenn, the DNA wasn't a match. At oh, that's best, interesting. Okay. It can be used not to exclude Holmes from being the cadaver. It was a partial profile of ancient degraded DNA, which had many blanks in the DNA chain and tree. Mm-hmm. And any one of those blanks had the number been different would have excluded Holmes as the cadaver. Would have excluded All right. Holmes. Okay. It's called a partial profile. It's not allowed in a court of law oh, that's on a capital case. Okay. That's right. That's right. So when you when we um, and to tell you the truth, none of those scientists 
had seen DNA test results when the final episode came out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's fair. Okay. They base their ID on the teeth. On dental analysis. Now, now, the, dental now to, records dental is what records. the quote was, which I've never seen any dental records. Now, now to be fair, now to be fair, it, are yeah. there are there um, well kept, well documented dental records from Holmes from Holmes's time? I've never seen them. Okay, so that's so it's speculate. Well, I say I, I would like to know. If that's true or not, because that is, I mean, that is, uh, that would be an interesting twist on it. If they were I've able asked to, for them. Okay. I've asked for them from the scientists and I haven't gotten anything back yet. They, but why would those be hidden? Me, that's interesting. I don't know if they're hidden. I don't want to go there. That sure. Yeah. 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 Yeah, of course. yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I will tell you this, they sent pictures of a dental mold that was taken, um, from who we don't know, when we don't know, even why we don't know, but it was on the JAMA report that NBC News just reported on. Uh-huh. A JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, yeah. for the physician who inspected the inmate before the execution. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a picture of a dental mold, which I think refers to the quote unquote dental records. Okay. And what they did was they used that dental mold to compare it with the cadaver's teeth. Okay? Okay. And when you go to that NBC video, which was out this last, I think, three days ago, three, four days ago. Yes, very, very but, new. But they refer to gold fillings. Okay, Ben? Mm-hmm. And obviously there's no gold fillings in the dental mold. And there was no mention of gold fillings on the uh, examining physician's report. So what you have is, and what I've tried to explain to the UPenn scientists, is that what they've proven is that what we exhumed was what was buried. Okay? And I'll give them that. Mm -hmm. But that's not a revelation. All that is is what I could have told them we were going to find anyway. What we were trying to do was establish that a substitution had been made before that time. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. So when you go back to that NBC video, and if you need to see, you can. If you can't get a hold of that jam report, I can send you a copy. Yeah, please but do. Please there do. is no, there is no mention of it being Holmes. <laughs> There's no mention of when they took it. There is no mention of why they would have taken a dental mold instead of just a photograph of the deceased face before burial, mm. or a death mask, as was done back then, sure, yeah, especially yeah. infamous criminals. If they had that technology to make that mold, why didn't they do a death mask? Or, and they photographed that mold, why didn't they photograph the deceased face? Sure. They were, for some reason, those, that mold was made to somehow identify something later on, in my opinion. That's obviously a stretch. A but little bit, but that's okay. I'll give it to you. When you, when you go to the DNA um, analysis, what I finally received, when, when I saw that final episode on TV, mm-hmm. and their quote, mm-hmm. I was shocked. I'd never seen any DNA. The UPenn scientists hadn't seen any DNA test results. So I demanded a copy. They were mine. They belonged to me and my family. Mm-hmm. I was told that King's College was apologetic for the delay. They'd get right on it. They'd have some results to me in two or three weeks. Okay? Mm-hmm. I received that partial result with the blanks in it. I then contacted my friend, the prosecutor in Philadelphia, and he put me in contact with his DNA expert who explained to me when you have degraded DNA, which was what it was, that's what UPenn said to the Associated Press in their quote. We didn't use DNA. It stank. We couldn't get any ID from it. We used the teeth. That's what they said, direct quote. And when the, the, this DNA expert explained to me what that means was that the whole summer, King's College and UPenn had been working on coming up with results from the DNA. Now, on a test, it takes three days. Mm-hmm. They couldn't come up with results. They couldn't. And that's because on degraded DNA, you get this. Have you ever seen photographs of how a DNA analysis works? I, I have, but you can but explain it. Yeah, they have these photographs, and they have the, the bright lines. You know, the, yeah. uh, our current DNA is measured in 21 alleles, they call them. Mm-hmm. Ancient DNA, you need over 37. We only got 21 back on that partial report. <clears throat> and you come back 
um, the uh, current DNA, fresh DNA is a series of bright lines. It's easy to measure. And as you say, the probabilities of it being wrong are billions to one. Yeah. It's very tight. Mm-hmm. But when you get into uh, degraded, mm-hmm. it's a series of blurred lines, which is a guess by the lab technician. And that's what the prosecutor's uh, expert was explaining to me. He said, that's why the Supreme Court has required cases using degraded DNA and partial profiles to be tested three times. Mm-hmm. Three different labs have to come up with the same result or it's not used to put a man to death. Mm-hmm. That's because it's a guess. And that guess has to be based on non-bias. It cannot be used by a lab that already had my results and my numbers. Okay. See what I'm saying? I do. Yeah, yeah. They can't, or the they can't have been told... Yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying they were involved in a conspiracy or anything illegal. That's right, just right, right. the way the human mind works. Sure, I get it. They also could not have been told by UPenn. We've already identified this guy from the chief. This is Holmes. They can't, they're not allowed to be told that either before they make their analysis. Sure. That's fair. So I'm just stating when, when people want to say the DNA proves it was Holmes, as NBC did again, um, I disagree. And I'd love... I can't wait for the opportunity. I've asked Ted to let me do it again. Let me go back up on stage and explain how you, this doesn't prove that Holmes was there. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, despite all the money that was spent, despite all the science that was used, we've got a, we've got a question, particularly, Dan, when you consider the skeletal discrepancy, all right? Mm-hmm. Which NBC, despite me telling them a hundred times, and you pen too, decided not to run in their video about the four inch difference between the skeleton and Holmes's measurement by both the police and the prison officials. Okay. The anthropological society gives you a half inch margin of error. They tested it three different methods, came up with the same number. Professor Munge, when she made her talk, she said, well, we came up with five, three, but that was a stretch. And she laughed it off on stage and I have her on tape. Okay. Mm-hmm. She says, we think the doctor forgot to tell him to take off his boots and lifts. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you and I both know that the, the prison officials and the police don't make that mistake, mm-hmm. not with an examining physician. So I, I continue to ask, how can this be? Why, did, why is that discrepancy not considered with the same energy that you want to use the partial DNA profile, that, that's something the Supreme Court said. When you have a partial profile, you've got to go to the next step in the evidence to identify a killer on a capital case. That would have been the skeleton and the teeth. Obviously, there was no fingerprints or blood type. Right. So, and when you simply refuse to acknowledge that one doesn't work, which, if you remember that final episode, uh, Dr. Cox said... On national television, the skeleton's too short. Mm-hmm. She said it on that. TV, mm-hmm. right on the eighth episode. Mm-hmm. Spoiler: I was alert. there when she did it. Mm-hmm. And for them to simply walk away from that is something to blow off. Uh, my legal mind doesn't work that way. I, I can't. And when I explain to them that the teeth doesn't prove the theory we're arguing for or against, and that the DNA profile was inconclusive at best, which Dr. Munge explained up on stage, Dan, in front of the media. That means it can only be used to not exclude Holmes as the cadaver. Mm-hmm. So I, that's where I'm at with the, the DNA and the testing results from the exhumation. Jeff, that is a great place to end it. I think that you know the, the, the debate over, over Holmes's DNA really encapsulates the entire mythology, if you'll allow me to use that word, this entire lore behind Holmes, because there is so much we don't know. And uh, it's this constant struggle for the truth that, that unfortunately may be never ending, uh, but will captivate us nonetheless, uh, probably you more, more than any. Um, I just find this topic fascinating. So, Jeff, how can people get in touch with you? You know, I've got a website that uh, www.bloodstainsthebook.com, or they can go on Facebook. I got a Bloodstains Facebook page, which we try to drop 
every new piece of evidence or media information that comes across. I'll, you know, I'll run our talk, you and mine on my bloodstains page. I just did an interview with ABC yesterday. That's going up today on the bloodstains page. So, um, and go there, follow it up. And like I say, I've got a team that everything new we find about homes pro and con we run up on the page. Awesome. Um, I'll have it up on the bio page again, Jeff. Thanks so much for being on the program today. Thank you, Dan. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode or to follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, which will tell you all about upcoming guests as well as upcoming projects. And subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now tune in so you'll never miss an episode. And if you like this, you'll like the other projects that I do. You can find them all on DanielJGlenn.com. Thank you for listening. End of transmission. Thank you.